joining us, tuning in. I'm glad you did. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. David Shields is here in the studio. We're taping it October 11th, 2012. David, thanks for coming in. Thanks, T. Nice to be here. And you're here in town reading. Uh, you're part of the Zell Visiting Writers Series, and you're in from Seattle. Right. And um, and you're in the whirlwind part of the visit now. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> Craft talk, radio, yeah. um, reading next. Yeah, and visiting. I visited with students this, this afternoon from 2 to 3. Very lively debate. Interesting. Oh, wonderful. So yeah. good ideas uh, yeah. exchanged. Yeah, we were talking a little bit about my most recent book, Reality Hunger, and questions that book tries to raise about appropriation that really always seems to punch people's buttons. And students are, to me, surprisingly old school in their view of the issue. So we debated it very interestingly. Huh. That is interesting, because you think with the sampling and I the know. different... And, or that... Um, and with MFA programs, too, thinking about the hybrid is actually something that, I, I mean, I know I'm interested. More people, I thought, were becoming more and more mm -hmm. interested in. I know. I mean, I, I mean, I can't speak for all. There was, you know, quite a few people in the room. and But the three or four people who spoke tended to want to push back against some of my thoughts. But that's the very nature of, it, of any conversation. If I had taken a really conservative position people might have pushed back the other way. Anyway, it's a very uh, smart and lively debate. Huh. Well, and also, I mean, you I think you want that because exactly. you call it a manifesto. Exactly. That's It's meant to be thrilled. I've always get get mixed up the words gantlet and gauntlet, but I was throwing down either the gantlet <laughs> or the gauntlet. Right. I think I was throwing down the gauntlet, I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but but both. Yeah, I, mean, I was throwing down both the gauntlet <laughs> and the gauntlet. And this is, of course, reality hunger, a manifesto. And this is you can get this with vintage. And a quick quick thanks to uh, vintage vintage and Knopf, um, Alexander Housetown and Brittany uh, Morangiello. Um, the good people who sent me copies of your book, and especially mm. Brittany, for getting um, How Literature Saved My Life to Me Overnight. Wow, that <laughs> thank, was fast. Thank you, Brittany. <laughs> yeah, Brittany's great. And this is coming out February 2013. Yeah, in about four months, yeah. And and that's pretty exciting. We've got the galleys here. I know, yeah, it's cool. So we'll talk about that book, Reality Hunger. Um, the thing about life is that one day you'll be dead. <laughs> People, people like I sort of knew I had a good title was when I told the title to one of my swimming 
friends, and he he kind of spit up <laughs> his water when he heard the title. He was started to laugh. I thought that was a good sign. You can't say. I mean, it's it's horrifying, right? Right. But you can't say it without laughing. Yeah, there's something about it that sounds funny, at least to some people. Yeah, to me, it's it's quite funny. Yeah. And I like that you also choose to have the period in the title. Like, that seems important. I totally agree. That was the designer's choice. I forget if on the hardcover, if it has that cover. I think it does have that period. I I wasn't built into my title per se, but I think it's a very clever designer choice. It clearly makes, it almost puns on the period. You know, like, what is the the British (laughs) phrase is full stop. You know, and then like you that, stop. You could almost call the book full stop. You know, <laughs> and that period is fu- is functioning as obviously a full stop. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's great. I, when I was reading the titles of the books to my class this morning, um, telling them about your reading, mm-hmm. um, I hope some of the listeners out there had a mm-hmm. chance to come and come and hear you. Um, and later in the program, we'll get to uh, David will read um, a short section so we get a sense of the prose. Um, but they, yeah, the kids laughed what, about the thing about like, like they just people laugh. That's good. That's a good sign. That's neat. So <laughs> what class is it? Is it a freshman comp or? Yeah, basically, this was uh-huh. writing 100 transition to college writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the I teach another class too. Mm-hmm. what you see is what you get. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, reality hunger, uh, a manifesto. I'll be using next next oh, term wow. um, with the idea of because um, in surrealism cool. and, and working with manifesto. Perfect. It's wonderful that you've got like uh, you always throw down the gauntlet or the gauntlet. You always throw down mm-hmm. both, and in in everything you write that I've I've read, but I haven't read all your earlier work. Mm-hmm. No, those three. I thank you. I mean, that's high praise to me. I mean, I think if you're not challenging your own assumptions and the reader's assumptions, if you're just sort of lulling them to sleep or giving them a warm bath or a hot toddy or whatever. It's like, I don't know. That's not the greatest role of art. I mean, there's sometimes I'm tired and I'll just sort of want to watch a well-crafted, soporific TV show that has its own pleasures. But that, is that really the calling of art? I would say the, 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 the real calling of art is to, you know, to me, do nothing less than revolutionize human consciousness. If you're not trying to do that, then why bother, you know? I'm agreeing with you, with emphatic hand gestures in the studio. <laughs> That's true. Before we go any further, let me read the short bio from the back of How Lit- Literature Saved My Life, um, which will be out February 2013. Um David Shields is the author of 13 previous books, including Reality Hunger, a manifesto named one of the best books of 2010 by more than 30 publications. The thing about life is that one day you'll be dead, a New York Times bestseller. Black Planet, facing race during an NBA season, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, and Remote, Reflections on Life in the Shadow of Celebrity, winner of the Penn Revson Award. He's published essays and stories and reviews in dozens of periodicals. His work has been translated into 15 languages. Um, so we've got some of these books on the table. And we were also mentioning um, a, a book you just edited for Norton, Fakes, mm-hmm. which seems to go hand in hand with this idea of, a, of appropriation from reality hunger. Definitely. I mean, I try and, and use these anthologies. I'm the editor now of three anthologies, and two of them have 
come out. I I co-edited an anthology, The Inevitable, which tries to build off the thing about life is that one day you'll be dead. The Inevitable has a subtitle of something like Contemporary Writers Confront Death. We have 20 good long essays by writers ranging from the religious to the sacrilegious about, you know, how they themselves confront their own mortality, which is clearly, I'm trying to sort of use it as a bookend to my book, The Thing About Life Is That One Day You'll Be Dead. And in a similar way, I think of of Fakes, which I co-edited with uh, the wonderful writer and editor Matthew Vollmer, um, is clearly meant to be a kind of P.S. to reality hunger, a manifesto, because Fakes, I think, provides, it's it's a series of about 40 pieces from some wonderful writers from, you know, George Saunders to Laurie Moore to Daniel Orozco to Lydia Davis to, you know, many, many wonderful contemporary writers who have crafted short stories which look at first glance as if they are real documents. That's the criterion for inclusion in the book, that first, your piece has to be wonderful, according to us, according to me and Matthew. And second of all, that your piece read as if it were some kind of official document, such as a police blotter, a... Um, that could be Charles Mudede. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Charles's, Charles's movie. Exactly. He's a, a friend of mine from Seattle and perhaps a friend of yours. Did you know Charles in Seattle? He's a, a wonderful guy, a very smart writer and filmmaker. But, um, you know, your document could be... Uh, a letter to a funeral parlor. A letter to a funeral parlor, <laughs> a letter to uh, a parking department, uh, somebody's CV, a syllabus, uh, a recipe, um, a bumper sticker, anything, so that we, we have taken these 40 pieces and tried to arrange them so that they kind of move from life to death. And I think they really do suggest a way that I think contemporary writing can work. Genre bending, um, funny, um, both semi-real and semi-fictional, and somehow taking the culture and remixing it. You know, we are... Our life is awash in endless official text, from emails to text to Google searches. And I think the book provides a bit of a, a toolkit for how we can take this flood of material that comes in and with a certain amount of tweaking, turn it into comedic and transgressive art. And revealing still a truth. Definitely. These pieces are, to me, often heartbreaking and funny and sad and immensely emotional, but they don't take place in a kind of kind of modernist paradise of pure art. They kind of exist for me in a bit of a halfway house between <laughs> the realm of received life and the realm of created art. They... They're a beautifully genre-defying works of art. Yeah, defying. Yeah. I love that. Not defining. No, exactly. Which is so often, like, in, on a campus, sometimes you're, you're about defining yeah. your terms or whatever it is. Yeah, genre-defying. That's a phrase of my friend Jeff Dyer. And uh, 
genre-defying, I find, a, a very useful term. Yeah, you're, it seems like you're working in it all the time, David. Very much. Alas. I mean, I... Uh, yeah. Alas? <laughs> well, alas in the sense that I, I love this stuff to death. I really have trouble reading or writing or teaching anything that isn't genre-defying. But I think it's a bit of a publisher's and booksellers nightmare in the sense that I think a lot of people read alas to to fall asleep you know to they've had a long day you know as my wife has like if she's working all day Lori Lori that she wants to come home and you know she wants to watch maybe a pretty good TV show does she want to watch some incredibly mind expanding work of self-reflexive documentary art maybe not you know, she wants, as do I sometimes, you know, just a lot of people read, they want to be tucked safely into genre, you know, a wonderful mystery novel, a wonderful thriller, a romantic comedy. And, okay, I, I'm for that. That sounds okay to me, but that's not what art does. I mean, art, ambitious art, like science, progresses. Do we need to endlessly reprove the theory of relativity? No. We've got it. Check. Got it. Done. Scientists now aren't in, in labs and rushing up to their supervisors and saying, guess what? I just proved the theory of gravity. Like, that's been done. And I think art that is endlessly reinscribing the forms of yesteryear are, to me, very, very limited and highly antiquated art. And when you were, were you, um, when this was first hitting you, David, in some way, was it when you were writing like a short story or, um, or cause you wrote a novel first, three novels, but, but like, like that's where you, yeah. And you, as a reaction, you said uh, to your maybe journalist parents a little bit, right? Like I'm going to work in fiction. Yeah. It's a very, to me, it's an interesting, excuse me, background where, both of my parents were journalists. I grew up on the West Coast in Los Angeles and San Francisco and now live in Seattle. And my parents were very politically active journalists, you know. The Nation. Yeah. My mom. my mom was the editor of The Nation, or not, not the editor, I've just uh, upgraded her. She was <laughs> the, uh, the, the West Coast co correspondent for many years for The Nation. And my dad wrote for a lot of California Democratic party magazines and things like that and in in what i thought was a radical act of rebellion i became a fiction writer you know i was a writer just like them i shared their politics to a large extent but i thought i would be you know a person of the imagination and i still am but i wrote three novels from my early 20s to my mid to late 30s and i'm proud of those books but Finishing that third book, a novel and stories, a lot of those stories look a lot like essays to me. The book kind of hovers halfway between the essay and the story. And then my next book, Remote, was clearly my Alice down the rabbit hole moment where I tried to write it as a novel. The novelistic architecture just did not happen. I realized what the book wanted to become. I realized what I think I do best, which is meditate on things, juxtapose things, make connections between things. 
but I'm probably not the world's greatest storyteller, plotter, character creator, scene setter. I'm I'm much better at at thinking about existence rather than than dramatizing existence. So over the last sort of 15, 20 years, I've written pretty exclusively literary collage. We'll take a short break and we'll be back to hear more. Um, David Shields, today on the program, um, the book's on the table, How Literature Saved My Life, Reality Hunger, A Manifesto. The thing about life is that one day you'll be dead. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Uh, you've got Gus in the engineering seat. And today, David Shields is here in the studio. Um, How Literature Saved My Life, out February 2013. Um, so the book to come. Um, so, David, you've, you've picked some of like the, the music. I strong-armed you with some of it. Mm-hmm. No, good <laughs> but, choice. But, but this song, why, why this one? I must admit, I, I sort of zoned out. What were you playing? I, I wasn't listening, I must admit. The, the Jupiter Symphony? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I, no, it's okay. I was, <laughs> we were also talking in the yeah. break, so you were distracted. Yeah, Jupiter. Yeah, it's, uh, it's Mozart's Jupiter Symphony. Is uh, I have a, a chapter of this book, How Literature Saved My Life. Is um, There's a chapter about how I, as a college student read my girlfriend's journal that so I was wrong. yeah I was I think kind of an anxious freshman or sophomore or whatever and at I brown. was at brown I wasn't a very sexually experienced Casanova or anything and I out of who knows what complicated mixed and pathetic motives I read my girlfriend's journal or my girlfriend to be's journal just to see frankly what she thought of me and if you know Whatever, very, very embarrassing and very unattractive behavior. But I do think a lot of writers think there are two kinds of people, you know, people who want to know what is in in other people's mail and those who don't. And most writers agree that almost all writers want to know what is in that envelope. You know, to me, the paradigmatic writerly moment was Nathaniel West being... Um, a clerk in a hotel in Los Angeles and steaming open the mail that his his guests received and those letters became the absolute center of Miss Lonely Hearts. 
And, um, you know, that, you know, you could say that's wrong, but on the other hand, that we have Miss Lonely Hearts. And, you know, I am, I'm not comparing myself to Nathaniel West, but, um, you know, I just think the whole point of my writing in that chapter, in that book, a lot of the books I write, proceeds from a wonderful line of Michel Montaigne who said, every man contains within himself the entire human condition. And so the thing I try and do in book after book is that I try and explore both the light and dark contours of my psyche, of my soul, of my mind, of my heart. And so I can't just present an airbrushed version which I come across as Mr. Likeability. I mean, I want to present a very full portrait, like in Thing About Life, I talk about how I both love and hate my father. I want him to live forever, and I want him to die tomorrow. In in Thing About Life, or that's Thing About Life, in, in, in Reality Hunger, a manifesto, I talk about um, the ways in which I find the novel form dead, the way it came, I came to a point of creative impasse. And in books like Remote, I explore how I was a media junkie in Black Planet. I talk about some of my racial attitudes. And in, in this new book to come, How Literature Saved My Life, I explore all manner of my own foibles. It's just simply what the essayist must do. If if he or she is going to become an interesting writer, you can't just present one facet of your personality. You have to explore every single aspect. And then if you are lucky, you'll not only explore yourself, but you'll somehow perhaps get to something at the center of many people's character. That human condition. Exactly. And so that's why you're willing to make yourself vulnerable on the page in a way. I think that's true. People often ask me, like, how in the world can you say these things about yourself? Like, uh, you know, and think about life, you know. Because your dad was in his 90s. Yeah. And that I always am using things as a way, I'm really not that interested in myself per se. I don't, I'm not a particularly fascinating person. I haven't sort of led a dramatic life. But I hope that my investigations are actually fascinating in the sense that I am am willing to explore to the very bottom of my psyche in order to get to something that I hope is universal. That's the whole gig for a writer of serious personal, personal essay. Now, if it goes wrong, you're left with a kind of narcissistic puddle and that's not so great. If you're if you're left with something good, it's a quite a, a magical thing in which you've taken your humble little life and used it to stage the human drama. I think that's a wonderful challenge. It reminds me of when I first actually saw you, David, at Richard Hugo House, and I'm trying to, I don't I can't remember what year it would be, but uh-huh. you might remember this because it was one of these readings in the cafe area of the of the house and this is in Seattle everybody and um you said this thing where I laughed out loud and I was like I like this writer and you said (laughs) about Green Lake Pool um because I think you had been injured and you were talking about like it was something about you were talking about physicality and and reckoning with it I think and Green Lake Pool the wetlands of the maimed Mm mm-hmm 
Do you remember that? I like, do. <laughs> That's a. I, I, I do like that phrase. I don't know where that comes from, but I. From you. No, but I'm trying to think of where. <laughs> I, I know where that. Where did you put it? Yeah. Like, yeah. It in a... it's, a, it's from the thing about life is that one day you'll be dead. I'm talking about how for 12 years, I mean, I, I still swim all the time. I, I basically had or have a bad back and, you know, just sort of like a chronically sore back. And so I found swimming to be a terribly helpful way of dealing with so but you looked around and just so many people were um a lot like i swim you know just because i have a teaching job i have a more a more flexible schedule than many people and so oftentimes i'll swim at wednesday you know at two in the afternoon and so i say who else is there but people who sort of have to be there you know there'll be a guy there's one guy who was undergoing uh like a sex change operation, there was a lot of people are crippled or they they're in a wheelchair. There's just there was this thing. It was just a, like the wetlands of the Maine. It's like on the one hand, it's the wetlands because it's you know that you're in a pool. Second of all, Seattle is wet because even though it doesn't rain there anywhere nearly as much as people think, it it certainly rains there. And then you know this idea of the Maine is like why else would we be there at <laughs> at Wednesday at one thirty in the afternoon, unless we sort of were trying to work on our bodies and get our bodies to work right. So, anyway, that's thanks. That's the phrase that I like too, as I encounter that in old work. And yeah, you just have to say if all you are saying is that war is bad and racial prejudice is bad and being nice to children and and puppies is good. I mean, that's. That there's nothing there. You've got to be willing to explore uh, really complicated parts of yourself. And I, I really pride myself on doing that. And I think I have certain strengths and very real limits as a writer, but clearly one of my strengths, I think, is that I'm willing to say almost any damn thing. You know, like I'll say difficult things about myself in the hope I'm getting to something essential about being about being alive and does and and with some of the books like so that's a brave thing and it seems like that's a mean that's a reason that's a reason to make art right um but what about what about um throwing other people under the bus or did your dad what did because because <laughs> the 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 you know the thing about life is that one day you'll be dead you're thinking about you, you know, for a, for like fraught relationship with, with parents, I mean, probably a human con- part of the human condition. Often. Right. Um, and you're you're using it as a way to examine. I don't know. A friend of the show, Tom Lynch, wrote a wonderful piece in the Boston Globe about it. And if you've got his sort of thumbs up um, with anything regarding death or the funeral, um, then I think you've, you've definitely achieved <laughs> Um, something essential about this condition, but but what you said, your dad sent you like line edits, or so when you got when mm-hmm. you after you sent him the book, or what do you think about this, David? This throwing no, it's a good phrase, T. That um, you know, obviously it's a phrase that people say. You know, throwing someone under the bus. You know, like if a coach speaks poorly of a player, or politician speaks poorly of his assistant, or you know, people use that phrase and it's it's always been a, a very vivid 
phrase to me, you know, throwing someone under the bus. You really can see it. Like, okay, they <laughs> are literally thrown under the bus. Now I want to retract and say no. it's not, it's also that you're just, or, or using parts of their life to of examine course. closely. And I think I, I visited with students earlier today, and people definitely brought up that issue. You might call it the, the, the ethical crisis of nonfiction. You know, yes, you might be willing to say complicated things about yourself, but does that grant you the right to say things about other people? And that's, of course, where it gets hard. I mean, I, I don't have an easy line to draw in the proverbial sand to say, oh, well, you can say X, but you can't say Y or Z. All I know is there would be no art of any kind if every writer put those strictures on himself or herself. I mean, my goodness, just even if it is masked as a work of fiction, I mean, I've written novels that are made up whole cloth, and everybody I know still thinks that they have been p portrayed, sometimes negatively in this book, in which the book is, to my ear, virtually entirely invented. So I think it's one of these damned if you do, damned if you don't, can't win for losing things. I remember I once wrote a, a portrait of, do you, do you know the talk show host Delilah? Do you know who she is? Oh, well, I know her now. Yeah. Book, and that she's out on the airwaves. Yeah. Um, David, let me say, we'll take a short break and we'll come back and we'll start with Delilah. That Does sounds that sound great. Good? Yeah. Okay, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. You've got Living Writers today on the program, David Shields. We'll be right back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm glad you did. Today on Living Writers, David Shields is here, and we were just listening to um, Daniel Johnston's uh, How to Walk a Cow, I think, or Walking the Cow. Um, why Why this song? Why Why is this one of the, the picks, David? <laughs> well, is this sort of like uh, Dis on an Island? What's that, that BBC show? Island discs in which you choose 10 songs to take to an island. There's a wonderful BBC show where they ask, you know, a, uh, an actor or a writer for their 10 CDs you'd bring to okay. an island. I mean, I'm not sure that Daniel Johnson would make my absolute top 10, but he's, uh, he's someone I write about briefly in How Literature Saved My Life. He's, a, to me, an incredible example of something that matters hugely to me and it's what I argue for and try to embody in, in my work is 
this quality of rawness, unfilteredness, nerve-jangled art in which to, to the degree the membrane can be, I basically am looking for as thin a membrane as possible between life and art. Obviously, anytime you start to write a sentence, it's different from life. Anytime that you, that you represent yourself on the page, there's a bit of fiction involved. But there's certainly a difference between Daniel Johnson's song and a, a Burt Bacharach song. You know, the, the one is at the extreme of, what would you call it, you know, sort of fictionality, and, you know, without even placing a judgment, per se, on, you know, a pop song or a pop ballad. But what we want to believe about ourselves. Yeah, that's our, our a good phrase. Exactly. So. Our sort of fantasy selves, and that has a value. But there's an incredible line of Samuel Johnson that I just love, and he says, a work of, he says, a book should either allow us to escape existence or teach us how to endure existence. And obviously, I put all of my money on the latter. You know, that a book could allow you to escape existence, whether it's, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien or J.K. Rowling or vampire books or whatever. And I, I don't know whether it's just my failure of imagination. I just am not interested in that kind of a fantasy, that kind of escape. I want a book that wrestles with with existence, with why we're here. There's a wonderful line of David Foster Wallace that I go back to over and over again. Wallace was asked, what's so great about books? And he said, we're existentially alone on the planet. I can't know what you're thinking and feeling, and you can't know what I'm thinking and feeling. A book at its best can bridge the, um, can basically, can bridge, can, can, can be a bridge across the abyss of human loneliness. And I just think that's beautiful to me. And that's frankly why I write. It's why I read. And the books that I want to write and the books I, I love to read very overtly try to bridge, try to build a bridge across the abyss of human loneliness. That's actually what they are doing. That's not some kind of sidebar or secondary show. I mean, a lot of people say, well, you know, this novel does this or this, or this movie, but I like books that overtly are wrestling with that question. And to me, Daniel Johnston, in his own way, in, in its rawness, its existential openness, its nakedness, its vulnerability is really beautifully moving and vulnerable in that particular way. And it's I think this this track is from the album Hi, How Are You? Yeah. That's a bridge. <laughs> Just saying that? Yeah. That's a great point, T, that Hi, How Are You? Is that wonderful? It begins the conversation, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and I think in, in your book, How Literature Saved My Life, I think you mentioned that you maybe first saw Kurt Cobain wearing that T-shirt or, or something. I, I think, I'm not sure I saw him live wearing the T-shirt, but I described that Cobain was a huge Johnston fan and aspired and achieved that kind of 
of nakedness in 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 his own art and um yeah cobain kurt cobain is an incredible model of that to me he was a a great artist i think who 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 risked an awful lot to try and create extraordinarily revelatory art and that rawness yeah exactly David, would you mind reading some from How Literature Saved My Life? Sure. I, um, and in a way, this isn't a bad transition, T, because I think I'll, I'll read a passage about George Bush, of all people. W. George W. <laughs> Bush, the 43rd president. And, you know, here it's it just began as a series of notes, but I think in a way this attempts in its own comic and humble way to embody what it is I was just t- just talking about. And this is from a short section called Negotiating Against Myself. It's hard now to reanimate how viscerally so many people hated George W. Bush just a few years ago. But looking back on him now, I remember him as a homebody, somebody who doesn't like to travel, travels with his pillow, is addicted to eight hours of sleep at night. So am I. In India, he wasn't sufficiently curious to go see the Taj Mahal. I must admit, I could imagine doing the same thing. For his New Year's resolution, nine months after invading Iraq, he said he wanted to eat fewer sweets. He was widely and justifiably mocked for this, but this was also my New Year's resolution the same year. He pretends to love his father, but he hates him. He pretends to admire his mother, but he reviles her. Check and check. When the Dutch translator of dead languages asked if, quote, datums could be translated as, quote, molten fool, I said, yep, pretty much. He finds Nancy Pelosi sexy, but he won't admit it. Compare that to my imaginative relation to Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman. He outsources every task he can. He walked into Condi Rice's office and said, screw Saddam, he's going down. I could imagine saying this. He loves to watch football and eat pretzels. He did everything he could to avoid serving in the Vietnam War. In 1974, when the war and draft were long over, I registered as a conscientious objector. As do I, he prides himself on being able to assess people immediately based on their body language. When he has the tactical advantage, he presses it to the limit. When he's outflanked, he is unattractively defensive. I don't negotiate against myself. I'm incapable of embodying this Bush aperçu, but I quote it at least once a month. 
He's not very knowledgeable about the world. He has trouble pronouncing the names of foreign leaders. He's obsessed with losing those last 10 pounds. He's remarkably tongue-tied in public, but supposedly relatively smart in private. He had a lower SAT score than most of his Ivy League classmates. So did I. He wildly overvalues the poetry and motion of athletes. He once said he couldn't imagine what it's like to be poor. I have trouble reading books by people whose sensibility is wildly divergent from my own. He wasted his youth in a fog of alcohol and drugs. I didn't do this, but sometimes I pretend I did. He reads a newspaper by glancing at the headlines, which is more or less what I do. He loves to get summaries of things rather than reading the thing itself. He's never happier than in the box seat of a ballpark. He takes way too much pride in throwing the ceremonial first pitch over the plate for a strike. He's slightly over six feet tall, but pretends he's six feet. Or rather, he's slightly under six feet tall, but pretends he is six feet. I'm barely six feet and claim to be six one. He's scared to death of dying. He was too easily seduced by Tony Blair's patter, as was I. His wife is smarter than he is by a lot. Asked by the White House press corps what he was going to give Laura for her birthday, he tilted his head and raised his eyebrows, conveying unmistakably, I'm going to give it to her. My wife's name is Laurie. He's intimidated by his father's friends. He can express his affection most easily to dogs. He finds the metallics of war erotic. His knees are no damn good anymore, so he can't jog and has taken up another sport, biking. For me, swimming. He loves nicknames. He's not a good administrator. He has a speech disorder. He views politics as a sporting event. He resents the New York Times's declining but still undeniable role in national life as pseudo-impartial arbiter. In a crisis, he freezes up, has no idea what to do, thinks first of his own safety. Note how I responded to the, to the 2001 Nisqually earthquake. He just wants to be secure and taken care of and left alone, pretty much my impulses. Asked what he was most proud of during his presidency, he said, catching a seven-pound bass. Asked in 2011, what's on George's mind now, Laura said, he's always worried about our small lake, whether it's stocked with bass, because he loves to fish. There's always some concern. It's too hot, it's too cold, are the fish not getting enough feed? That's what he, he's worried about. He's lazy, it goes without saying. He hates to admit he's wrong. Every quality I despise in George Bush is a quality I despise in myself. He is my worst self realized. G.K. Chesterton asked what's wrong with the world, said, I am.
Thanks, David. You're welcome. I had to move away from the mic there. Yeah, you were threatening <laughs> to laugh a few times there. So what? So what do you gain by being uh, putting yourself, uh, kind of admitting to how W has some similarities with you? Right. Well, like 99% of people in Seattle, you know, I fly my anti-George Bush credits everywhere I go. I mean, I George Bush drove me. I felt as if every day from 2001 through, through 2008 was a kind of conspiracy to drive me crazy because every single day in the paper, Bush would do something that I just said, it's as if every single action he takes, everything he says is meant to make me upset. It was just, I said, it was as if his- It felt personal. It's as if his goal in life was just to make steam come out of my ears. And I just felt like on on one, I mean, I'm not a hugely politically active person. I mean, I feel like I have a politically active consciousness. I think about the world, but I, I'm not hugely politically manning the barricades. And so I didn't have anywhere I could take all this rather boring and not very reflective passion. And so... On the one hand, I'm kind of a knee-jerk, left-of-center political person. On the other hand, I'm a writer. I'm write, I write personal essays. And the very essence of the essay is doubt. And so there's a wonderful line of W.H. Auden who says, great art is clear thinking about mixed feelings. And I felt like, wow, you know, I just felt like it wouldn't be very interesting to write one more anti-Bush piece. I'm not a, a political scientist. There's nothing interesting about saying I'm against Guantanamo or I'm against the Iraq or Afghanistan wars or I'm against all of the many things I thought and think of myself as being against. And so one day, I think, again, I was swimming at the wetlands of the maimed at the Green Lake Pool, and I just started thinking of all these very trivial ways in which I share some very sort of surface similarities with George Bush, like, you know. The sweets thing. Yeah, sugar, or that I like sports, or I like, I mean, I like pretzels or whatever that, <laughs> you know, just sort of minor things. And so as a, almost an expiation of my own feelings, I just scribbled them down at white heat, just everything I could possibly think of. And I frankly just sort of filed it away, pretty embarrassed by it almost, <laughs> especially in Seattle where it's against the law to to not be against George Bush. And I just felt like, God, if, if anybody found this document, I might be- Don't you know, get hit by a bus. <laughs> I might get exiled to Tacoma or something. But Or Kirkland. Kirkland, yeah. And so- Bellevue, yeah, that's sort of the wealthy <laughs> suburb. It's sort of like the Bloomfield Hills of uh, Seattle, if that's the right analogy. But in any case, as I started to put together how literature saved my life, the long first chapter of that book is, is trying to show how I'm ambivalent about everything, how I'm racked by doubt, uh, self, you know, in a, both a good way and and bad way, I see both sides of, of everything. And so, 
at that point, I realized, gee, I'll pull out those old bush notes and see if they don't fit here. And to my surprise, they were pretty much ready to go. I sort of licked the prose into shape. I kind of have made the prose hum a little bit more. I added details. I subtracted details. I moved stuff around. I tried to give the prose a little stronger rhythm. But basically, those notes became that chapter. And it was the kind of thing that I felt like people are going to hate me or hate this. And as always proves the case, the thing I'm most embarrassed about, the thing I'm most ashamed by, the thing I'm most wary of is invariably the thing that people respond to the most. And I think there's such a lesson there for writers and perhaps even for readers. One thing, I think it's good for readers not to stand back in judgment, but rather try to find how they too might be flawed. And for writers, I think it's terribly important to be complicit, to not stand above the fray as some finger-wagging moralist, but to sort of get down there in the moral muck and f- and get dirty, get complicated, that you're a, a human being too, that you're not some enlightened being. And I think that is really, to me, where good re- where good writing starts with moral complexity. And and is it also maybe why you have that three by five card above your desk by Dennis Johnson, the write yourself naked from exile and in blood? Yeah, that's it. I I love that line of Dennis Johnson. I, you know, I go to a lot of these writers conferences and sometimes the conferences are interesting and sometimes they're not. But at, at one of them, I heard Dennis Johnson say that, you know, I don't have any hair left on my head, but if I had any hair, it would have stood up on the back of my head. And I just think that's so beautiful. I mean, it's a little corny. It's a little bit melodramatic. Maybe to non-writers, it seems a little highfalutin or a little self-dramatizing. But gee, if you don't care about it that much, then why bother? I mean, write yourself naked means, you know, Break it down, break yourself down to the studs. You know, really examine your deepest self. In exile means to not worry about whether you're in Paris or London or New York. It doesn't really matter where you live. I mean, in in exile means try to be in exile from conventional wisdom, from the powers that be. And then in blood just means, you know, again, it's maybe a little self-dramatizing, but it means take some quite serious psychic risks. And I just think that's a very inspiring writerly mantra. And it is is it, it is above your desk. It is. I mean, I, I say that, and, and it is. I think in the... Yeah, it, it definitely is above my desk. It sort of moves around. Sometimes it's on the Bolton board. Sometimes it's on the computer, but it's there as a, a constant reminder. I like that it's on a three by five card. Yeah, so. it's just a simple little thing. And so now I feel like um, we need to talk about Delilah because we mentioned this radio program. Right. <laughs> and not that she's simple, but on the surface, she might seem to be. Mm-hmm. But there's this complicated thing. Do you want to talk about Delilah? Sure. The, I think the way I was planning to bring it up um, 
was just this sort of funny story where I wrote a profile of Delilah. Of Delilah. You went to her house. I went to her house. I visited her at the radio station. It was a profile for the New York Times Magazine. And sometimes when, when you say that, that kind of opens doors because, you know, a million readers read the Times and, and you know, it has a national audience and it's related to advertising, you know, advertisers see it and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, you kind of have gained access to, you know, people that you wouldn't otherwise. And so I wrote a prof. Delilah happens to live and be based in Seattle. It has national syndication across the country. And anyway, I wrote this profile of Delilah, and my wife, Lori, had read the piece, and it, it was coming out in the Sunday Times Magazine the following day, and she asked me if whether she or our daughter, Natalie, appeared in the piece, because this was in relationship to, to your question, you know, is it okay to throw other people under the bus? And I said, no, Lori, neither you nor La- neither you nor, nor Natalie appears in the piece. And she said, what, we're not good enough? You know, which to me was a kind of clever joke, which is if I include people, they get mad. If they don't include people, they get mad. And you can't win for losing. I think that's the way Lori meant the joke, which is, you know, she was just teasing me that sometimes she'll get slightly miffed if I mention her in a, a piece. But now she was sort of kidding that she probably wasn't happy that she wasn't in it either, or so she pretended. Anyway, that was my original reason f- for mentioning Delilah. But I think Delilah is an interesting phenomenon, which is that it's an interesting show that she plays a lot of romantic ballads from something like seven at night till midnight, six nights a week. Uh, but why did you want to write? Did you pitch this? To be honest, the Times approached me. Oh, oh, okay. So it wasn't like that I was a Delilah fan per se. I mean, okay. I'm a fan of all kinds of pop culture, but Delilah per se wasn't on my radar. But she became on my radar, and I think she is genuinely fascinating, and she became a, both a magazine profile and then in a compressed way. She became a short chapter of my book, how Literature Saved My Life, and she's in this chapter on romantic love. And I think she falls under the... I, in the chapter on romantic love, I talk about love is either a long, close scrutiny or love is illusion. And to me, what's interesting about Delilah is how she works sort of both sides of that fence. Mm-hmm. To me, that she's telling a lot of sweet lies to her audience, endlessly telling them, you know, giving them these romantic ballads by Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey and Bette Midler and just pop tunes that preach romantic love as a salvation of everything. And yet Delilah has been married and divorced three times. She's adopted 12 children and she's she has a very chaotic life. And she, on the other hand, the song is endlessly preaching rom- romantic love and there's a real... S- schism between her life and what she's preaching and then everyone calls in with problems and Delilah often gives smart advice and so the show is sort of taking at the same time it's giving it's on the one hand giving this romantic advice at the same time it's really saying no one has a chance it's not going to work out and there's a kind of salvation in the sheer hope 
of this romantic illusion. And I think Delilah knows that. I think that her listeners know that. There's a kind of, I don't really believe in love, but I believe I love being, I love loving love is almost the answer the show provides. And it's kind of a... That's a t-shirt. <laughs> Is could it? Be. No, I'm just saying it could oh, be. <laughs> what would it say? The, that I, I don't I, believe in I, love. I believe I, in love, love. I love loving love. Right, <laughs> right. Well, we'll, we'll trademark it, T, and <laughs> we'll, we'll go halvesies on it. But uh, anyway, that she's an interesting figure who's somewhat confused and confusing, but her very contradictions speak volumes. I've definitely noticed that most iconic figures, whether Elvis... Madonna, Jesus, Delilah, just to name four incredibly random people, tend to embody our confusions and contradictions. You know, that someone like Elvis Presley, on the one hand, was just a mama's boy, you know, a southern gentleman. On the other hand, he was, you know, Elvis the pelvis. He was sort of both, pure sexuality and kind of gospel song yeah and that he he actually was the contradiction and madonna too very obviously or and i think delilah to a, a large extent embody not that she's in anything like as iconic a figure as those people but a lot of people dave eggers the writer i think is like that he really embodies both salesmanship and being hip. He's like both very hip and very skeptical, and he's also a very comfortable as a kind of entrepreneur and salesman. I think that contradiction speaks to his generation. I think oftentimes people like Jay McInerney from a couple generations are going to think of a contemporary writer who's a little like that. I think a lot of David Foster Wallace was frankly like that, that his contradictions. He was on the one hand an intellectual who also watched 12 hours a day of television. I think that you can't fake that. When you really embody a contradiction very powerfully sometimes, and you have great artistic strengths, you can sometimes become a a cultural figure. And and maybe that's why in, in your, your book out this coming February 2013, How Literature Saved My Life, um, or didn't, is <laughs> when you get to that chapter. Thank you. Yeah, that's the crucial—I'm sorry, T, if you had a question following up on that. But yeah, I think you've captured—I mean, I don't pretend that either the book aspires or I aspire to be— embody some kind of cultural zeitgeist. I think the the reality hunger in some ways did in 2010 that my own contradictions and doubts about appropriation and genre, I think somehow captured maybe a moment. But how literature saved my life, you know, I think the the crucial last chapter is that chapter in which I sort of flip everything upside down, that for seven chapters I've been arguing for how literature excuse me, slowly but surely saved my life. And then in chapter eight, I say, hold the phone. The last chapter has a subtitle, or it's titled, How Literature Saved My Life. And then the subtitle following directly on it is, How It Didn't. And so that 
over the next 20, 25 pages, I worry that very distinction. Can literature save one's life in 2012 and 2013? Can someone who doesn't have great digital skills still be a literary virtuoso in a culture which is completely run by by digital means still have room for literature? Do I still believe in literature? If so, how? Is there an audience for the kind of writing I do? And finally, at the end of the book, I feel like I arrive at a decent solution, which is the very last line of the book, not to give the game away too much, but um, the last line of the book is pretty much sort of summarizes that very contradiction, which is just a short two-paragraph section called How Literature Did and Didn't Save My Life. I wanted literature to assuage human loneliness, but nothing can assuage human loneliness. But nothing can assuage human loneliness. Literature doesn't lie about this, which is what makes it essential. And that's the end of the book, boys and girls. And and the end of our show. It's the end of our show. And we're out of time. And good night. Thank you, David Shields, so much. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Living Writers. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, October 17, 2012, in Los Angeles. I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama clash in their second presidential debate, taking on immigration, taxes, and jobs. We'll take a look at their records on women's rights and climate change. In Washington state, a former Congress member tries to set himself apart with a plan to create jobs through a green economy. And we'll go to Nigeria, where plans to address rising population by building a city in the ocean draw concern from environmentalists. Those stories and more coming up after this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FF.